Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. I was telling the young people in Sunday school this morning that I don't bring my Bible to the pulpit anymore because I can't read it. It must have gotten wet and the print has shrunk, so I, uh, I print it all out in 14 font. And it still looks interestingly small, so let's uh, just ask God's blessing. Father, bless your truth. Uh, amaze us with your grace and uh, change us. Uh, God, I pray. Change us. We need you to do that work in us, and we ask for that favor in the glorious name of our Savior Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's, uh, let's read in Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him in the and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now, Hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen or the best part of the land and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds, all you have, I will provide for you. There will, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father of all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping. He kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. The title of my sermon this morning is Sovereign Grace Changes Everything. But I think there's a problem. And that problem is that I think we struggle with understanding what it means for God to be sovereign. And we struggle with embracing and understanding God's grace. The sovereignty of God means something like this. It is his 
total control of all things, past, present, and future, so that we're in such a way that nothing happens beyond his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by or allowed by him for his purposes and for his glory. He is the only supreme, absolute, omnipotent ruler in the universe. So when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that God is supreme, that he is over all things, behind all things, using all things, is never surprised. Grace, I can give you a shorter definition of. It is undeserved favor. And that favor always comes to us through the supreme control of God himself. God is sovereign and gracious. This is an account of how God preserved and prospered his chosen, undeserving people in a broken world. Joseph, in this text, though deeply wounded, is God's tool to bring about a great deliverance. And I love that phrase as Joseph describes why God sent him to Egypt. Joseph can now see that God sent him to bring about a great deliverance, a savior effect into their lives. So I I, I set the, the stage with this idea that God is sovereign and gracious, and when I know that, it changes everything in my life. The other thought that I want to provoke your thinking with is with the word, the gap. As I read this story, I think I am reading an astonishing story of God's grace. I believe I am reading the story of a remarkable individual who was completely and utterly yielded to the sovereign grace of God. The effect of that was that the gap that is present in many of our lives, and when I say the gap, I mean the distance between what we believe, what we know to be true, and how we live. I think as I read through Joseph's life, I'm reading the life of a man. There is no apparent gap between what he knows to be true and how he lives his daily life. And I believe the reason for that is he is a man who has come under the sway of sovereign grace, even when it has led him to difficult places. He is captivated by the fact that God is present in his life. Last week, we saw the dramatic reveal to his brothers that I just read to you. After 22 years of rejection and wishing Joseph gone, there is this stunning and amazing reunion that is recorded for us in this passage of Scripture. And what I want you to notice as we look now at the response of Joseph or the, the reaction of Joseph to this situation because when you're in situations that are so astonishing, there is a tendency to need to react. And in the reaction to circumstances, you tend to learn a lot about where you stand with God. I think what many of us find in those moments where we are reacting out of who we are, where we're being exposed, we find that there is a subtle gap that has crept in, a gap between what we know to be true and how we're living our lives. And this text, in my mind, serves to move us to closing that gap between what we know to be true about God, sovereign and gracious, and how we tend to live our lives. For Joseph, there is, as you read it, there's no apparent gap, and yet I know there is a season of about a year 
between the first sight of his brothers who rejected him and the return back to the land for more food. So in that 12 months, Joseph has been working through his reaction. He has contemplated the sovereignty of God. He has contemplated how he ought to respond to this situation. And he has come to a settled conviction about sovereign grace. And that truth about God, that he is sovereign and gracious, is going to now direct very carefully the response that Joseph gives to his brother. So I want you to see it as you look at it. He's responding to those that wished him dead 22 years ago. Sold him as a slave. And now they stand before him and he has ultimate authority over them in that setting. What would you do? What would you do? So let's look at chapters 45 and 46 this morning. And the main thing we're going to be doing is just examining the fact that there is no gap between what Joseph believes and how he lives. And it causes him to be a brilliant light and a beautiful example of a man who so utterly trusts God that it has a transformational effect in his life. Now, verses 4 through 8 is where I'd like you to look with me this morning in chapter 45. In 4 through 8, Joseph is responding to his brothers. He calls them to come close. He acknowledges, I am your brother, the one you sold to Egypt. So in the midst of the mix is the truth. He's not hiding or ignoring what has happened, nor is he in bondage to what has happened. And so he puts it out there. I'm the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? Don't be angry with each other. Later he'll say to them, don't quarrel on the way. Because he knows that now once sin is exposed, what happens? The finger pointing starts. And Joseph is warning them against that. He has fought through that same experience. 22 years. How does, he, how does he resolve the tension? How does he convince them not to be angry with themselves for selling him there? In the midst of verse 5, he says, it was to save lives you're selling me here. And in that, God sent me ahead of you. And you're going to notice three times, verse 5, verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve lives a remnant. So then verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. So that's where you will wrestle with what it means for God to be sovereign, that he is above and over all and working in all circumstances for our good and for his glory. So how does this affect the child of God? How does this temper Joseph's response. And I think the first thing I want to say this morning is those that know that God is sovereign and gracious are compelled themselves to practice that same kind of grace. Here's the way 1 John will later put it. We love him because he first loved us. And then John goes on in chapter 4 to say this. He says, beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to or we are obligated to love one another. See, Joseph's 
gracious response in this circumstance, his lack of venom, his lack of resentment, his lack of hatred and bitterness is rooted in the fact that he has seen God working in, through, over, and above all of the circumstances that would, for most of us, be devastating for the rest of our lives. When I know that God is in control, I can say that God sent me here. And in this case, Joseph is strong. He says, your actions are secondary. God's actions are primary. You sold me. God sent me. And that's this wrestling that we face between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God working all things together for good. This is a beautiful text. Those that know that God is sovereign and gracious are compelled themselves to be gracious. And for Joseph, this is not just something he sits in church and says, okay, yeah, I got that. God is sovereign and gracious. It's the truth that is transforming him. And I would encourage you to meditate on what it means to be, for God to be sovereign in your life and gracious all at once. Look at your life. And, and the fascinating thing is that Joseph now knows that the blessings he's been experiencing inexplicably are intended for his family. And that becomes difficult for us too, doesn't it? Well, now I have to take the blessings that God has brought into my life and pay them forward to others. It's one thing to say that God's been gracious to me, but it's a different story when God wants me to be gracious to enemies. It's the rub of biblical Christianity. So first thought, those who know that God is sovereign and gracious are compelled to be gracious themselves. Second thought emerges in verse 8. So then it was not you who sent me, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, ruler over all of Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what Joseph, your son, says. And you, gotta, you have to read that with a little bit of, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how to say it. There's something humorous about that. Go back and tell my father. What Joseph says, God has made me Lord of Egypt. Don't go back and tell him I'm alive. <laughs> go back and tell them he has made me Lord. That's a very subtle but powerful statement from Joseph. And, and what Joseph is going to point to in this text is the extreme favor that God has poured over his life in the difficult circumstance where he has seen the horrifying turn to the great blessing in his life. And it's, it's something Joseph never seems to get over when he sees them. He sees the larger picture with great clarity. He's had a year to meditate on it. He's come to a settled conviction. God brought me here. Who would have ever thought? This is the hand of God in Joseph's life. Verse 9, he says, now, hurry back. So what do they have? They have good news. God has sent to Egypt for them, through their sinfulness, a Savior. Someone who will rescue them to bring about a great deliverance. I love that statement at the end of verse 7. Joseph is now starting to grasp that. Now he wants that news to go back to his father. But it also is an opportunity for the brothers to wrestle with their own guilt and accountability. He's not cutting them a break. He's sending them back so they'll confront their sin and then come into enjoying the blessing of God in their lives. Go back and tell them, confess your sin, and then move this way. Now, I want you to see what verses 10 to 13 say. 
And this is Joseph's direction for them that he anticipates Pharaoh will later put a stamp of approval on. He says, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all that you have and I will provide for you. You know the phrase that jumped out of this verse the most to me? You shall live in the land of Goshen and be near me. To me, that is an extraordinary display of grace. Here's here's the, the point that I think emerges out of this next section. Those who know that God is sovereign and gracious in their own life are enabled to love rebels that have offended them. Now, think through the text. Who is it that Joseph is offering preservation of life to and proximity to? It's to rebels. It's to people that wished him dead. And folks, understand, this has now been 22 years. And now this confrontation and this unbelievable love flowing out of understanding that you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, you sent me or you sold me here, God sent me here. That conviction has settled in. God brought me to this place. God is going to work in this place. And that understanding of amazing grace is compelling Joseph now to offer proximity and provision and protection for people who could clearly be labeled as rebels against the will and plan of God. Can I push this a little further? Verses 14 and 15, he moves into a a dramatic display of affection because over the year, God has convinced him, I brought you here, Joseph, and that is changing Joseph. He throws his arms around Benjamin and wept. We know that that we kind of understand. He's his full brother, and and Benjamin had nothing to do with selling him into Egypt. That's all fine, but verse 15 is shocking. He kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And so strong was the affection that afterwards his brothers talked with him. He kissed them and wept over them. It was an expression of joy, a reconciling of deeply conflicted emotions as he understands that you sold me here, but God sent me here. And in all of your sinfulness, God was working for our good and for his glory. And Joseph understands that the blessing that has come to him was not for his personal benefits. It was a blessing that was intended to be shared not only with people, but with rebels. And I, I, as I study this text, I, I see something that moves beyond, I have to forgive them. Okay, God, I'll forgive them. There's something stronger than that going on here, and I think it is this stronger thing that we as believers often never experience because we don't know that God is sovereign and gracious to the degree that it has affected our behavior. Does that make sense? If I'm not convinced that God is sovereign and gracious, if I'm always blaming him for things that are going on in my life, if I never embrace the plan and purpose of God in all of his sovereign, supreme control in my life, I tend to be a bitter and resentful person. And I will never in that situation know the pure, unbridled delight of restoring rebels. Folks, for Joseph, this is a privilege. He has seen God work in an unbelievable set of circumstances, uncanny. 
with the result being that he is not going to tolerate them. He's not going to put up with them. He's not going to, okay, I'll cut you some slack. You can come and live here. You better be good. There's nothing. There's nothing like that. This, I would say, is a true gospel story. God aims to save rebels. Joseph did not allow bitterness to blind him to the powerful hand of God in his life. And the result was that he experienced a greater delight in God than most of us will ever experience because we allow bitterness to stifle understanding of the sovereign grace of God in our lives. So I encourage you this morning. When you find that life can be bruising in your personal experience and you find that payback comes very naturally, would you remember the grace is amazing? It is amazing. And when you are captivated by that, you're freed from another bondage. Here's what you'll find. You'll never find someone who has captured the bitterness and can honestly sing amazing grace. You can't. It's a gap. But when you know that God is sovereign and that God is gracious and working all things together for our good, you come to a place of delight that you can never otherwise experience. And Joseph now begins to move in this story towards rebels. It reminded me of Romans 5.8. God showed his love to us in this. While we were yet sinners, rebels, Christ died for us. And let that redeeming work of God in your life, as you look back and realize that he has rescued you and saved you and you were an enemy, now we sing the song, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. I think what Jesus would say to every Christian is, now go and put into practice the grace that I have sovereignly poured into your life. Let it so amaze you that it breaks the shackles of bitterness and frees you to be in bondage to the incredible and amazing love of God. Joseph serves as proof of God's love for rebels. So here's a question you can ask yourself. Who have I ever amazed by saying, I forgive you? Who, ha who have I ever amplified the grace of God so significantly for by saying, I forgive you? Because I know that God is sovereign and he has been gracious to me. Folks, that is the sweet spot of Christian living. And I would argue it is the place of greatest delight. It's where I understand God's love in a way that I could never understand it otherwise. I don't understand it only because I experienced it. Joseph had it. It was clear. But when Joseph expressed it, it is amazing. So I beg of you this morning, if you're wrestling with bitterness, resentment, bondage of fear, and whatever it may be, towards others, laid at the feet of the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. Well, the transition of the text is that Joseph sends his brothers off to tell his dad that he's alive. And Pharaoh, hearing all that's going on, there's an amazing thing that happens. Joseph is in a place of favor with Pharaoh. He has a lot of, if he's playing poker, he's got a lot of chips. Uh, Pharaoh owes him big time. Forgive me for using the illustration of poker in church. <laughs> but with Pharaoh, he's got a lot of chips. He's got a lot of favors coming to him. 
Pharaoh hears all this. You know what Pharaoh says? Everything Joseph just said, Pharaoh's like, take the best of Egypt and go get your father and bring him here. I'll let you live in the best of the land. I will care for you. You'll be nearby. You'll be protected. He gives them the best place. For who? For people that don't deserve it. Do you understand how the gospel story saturates the story of Joseph? It saturates the reaction of Pharaoh. And the thing that's amazing to me is because there was no gap in Joseph's life in terms of how he lived between what he believed and how he practiced. Since there was no gap, Pharaoh saw that. That brought Joseph into a place of favor with Pharaoh so that when his family needs to come, Pharaoh is like, I'll give you whatever you need. And his brothers live in the overflow of the brother Joseph who was rejected because he didn't have a gap in his life. Does that make sense? This blessing that comes to the brothers is coming because of Joseph. And that makes me think of the gospel. The blessings that I experience from God or because of Christ and my relationship with him and proximity. Joseph says, you come and you live and be near me. That thought blows my mind. It's an amazing grace of God that is poured out. And I love after he gets this all said. So, so in, in 16 through 18, Pharaoh says, go get your dad and bring him down. And I will give you the best of the land. Verses 20 or verse 19 and following, or, or uh, uh, 21 and following, Joseph begins to repeat all this to his brothers. So he gets this directive from Pharaoh, and Joseph pours this blessing out on rebels freely. And at the end of it, I love what he says to them. Verse 24, end of verse 24, he sent his brothers away, and as they were leaving, he yells out to them, Don't quarrel along the way. <laughs> Folks, listen. All that means is Joseph is very wise because you know what the brothers are thinking. It was your idea. Yeah, but I told you to put him in the pit because I didn't want him to. I was going to go back later and get him, get him out of there. And everybody wants to run from the truth. And that is simply they hated their brother. Jesus said, if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. And Joseph says, if you guys start trying to sort this all out and figure who's ultimately responsible, you're going to miss the big picture of sovereign grace because God has meant it for good. And when you hated me, God was behind that working something beautiful. Deliverance for many. Folks, let that settle in because that's the theme of this story. And when you comprehend and when you allow your mind to marinate in the truth of sovereign grace it will begin to change you 25 to 28 they get home they express to their father that joseph is alive and he's just he's bewildered he's wrestling with a couple things isn't he he's wrestling with the fact that his brothers could so hate joseph the beloved son chosen to lead that they would sell him into slavery and wish him dead and deceived their father for 22 years. He's stunned. He's stunned. See, none of my sin ever happens in a vacuum. It always affects people around me. And the sin of these brothers that they now travel home with, the secret that they've been hiding, is going to be exposed. And so the... A third thought that comes to my mind as I read through this 
those that know that God is sovereign and gracious. And I, in, in the back of my mind, I see Joseph as someone who knows that, and I see Jacob as someone who knows that. And here's what I think they know. They know that ultimately the plan and purpose of God cannot be thwarted by awful human behavior. And I say it that way because I want it to sink into you. I can't tell you that I feel like I have experienced awful human behavior. It has hit close. I've seen it and I've heard it from many of you sitting here today. You've experienced awful human behavior. Things done to you and against you that are heart-wrenching and that leave your life marked. I think this text speaks to you because it spoke to Joseph that spoke to his father, both of whom were victims of awful human behavior. Here's what I want you to know. Awful human behavior cannot thwart the purposes of a sovereign God. Does it ever seem like it does? Yes. Does it ever ultimately? I want you to think through the text. You sold me here. God sent me here. And folks, there is a freedom when you understand and embrace the truth that God is larger than any awful human behavior that has been unleashed against you. The most awful human behavior ever unleashed was on our Savior. And God overcame that for your good and for his glory. And Joseph can see God overcoming awful, unspeakable human behavior to preserve life. And when you know that God is sovereign, you will see it differently. It will sink in. It will begin to change you and liberate you and free you and move you to a place of delight and forgiveness for God's glory. This morning I say to you, if the impact of sinful behavior of others on your life remains devastating to and decimates your faith, your God is too small and people around you are too big. You will fear people. You will see them as in control of your life and not God. For Joseph, there was a difference of perspective. For Joseph, God kept getting bigger and bigger. And people kept getting smaller and smaller. So that this issue of perspective, in trouble, where do you look? Joseph would say to you, keep your eyes fixed on him. Remember the promises that he gave you? Cling to them. He never lets go. And watch him work in your life. And it may take 22 years. Folks, I calculated this story out yesterday. 40-some years this story will go on. And yet Joseph can say, God meant it for good. That's a great degree of faith and a great God. I'm often reminded of the verse in the Psalms, some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in circumstances. It's going good. It may not be good tomorrow. People are treating me well. They may not treat you well tomorrow. In fact, I think there's a pretty good chance they won't. But God remains unchanged. He is sovereign over us. 
the last thought I'd just provoke your thinking with is as you move into chapter 46, Jacob having now a word from God from his son begins to do what he was reluctant to do, and that is to get down to Egypt. He's one of the people of promise. He's third in line to the promise of Abraham. Go to the land of Canaan and don't leave. Now he's getting direction from God to go down to Egypt. And the the emotion that Jacob experiences and expresses in the midst of great faith, the emotion he experiences, fear. But as he walks in obedience, God meets him. In chapter 46, so Israel set out, Jacob set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. He had a worship service. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, I am the God of your father. He said, do not be afraid to get down to Egypt. Now listen to these promises. I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. Here's the bonus. And Joseph himself will close your eyes. So what happens? What happens is a man of God is responsive to the direction of God because he believes that God is sovereign. And as he moves in the sovereign plan of God, God meets him and gives him assurance and promise and blessing to help him get through to the end. Folks, here's what I believe you can count on. As you walk in obedience and trust in the sovereign grace of God, you can expect that God along the way will meet you and speak to you and comfort you and encourage your heart with everything that you need. And one of the ways that he does that, according to Romans chapter 4 or 5, is it says that the Holy Spirit has come to shed abroad the love of God in your heart to assure you that God's in control, that he's working through your circumstance, that he's working for your good and for his glory. And so Joseph, as he walks in the sovereignty of God, worships God as he contemplates this amazing situation. God says to him, Joseph, don't be afraid. As you begin to move in the promises of God and begin to move in obedience to the will of God as it is revealed in your life, God will reaffirm his promises by the presence of of the Holy Spirit. Now, as this text ends, I just make one note in, in, uh, let me get this verse for you here. Okay, here it is. It's, It's smaller on the paper than it should be. Verse 27. Now, 6 through 27 is the genealogy of all the people that are going. There are 68, counting Joseph. Add in the two sons of Joseph, you get to the number 70. And the number 70, as you study through the Old Testament, has a significance, something relating to or akin to the fullness of the purpose and plan of God or the fullness of the people of God. So what is God doing through this story and through Joseph's openness to the sovereign plan of God? God is bringing all of his people into a place of protection. There he promises that he will grow them and one day bring them back to his purpose and plan. Even this detour is part of what God is doing to demonstrate for the people of Israel who hear this account that God is sovereign over all. Now, I want you to imagine as I close this morning the story of Joseph with a twist. Joseph does not believe that God is sovereign and gracious. How does the story work out? 
Hopefully not like your life. I challenge you, just think about this story. If Joseph is unresponsive to the grace and plan of God, if Joseph refuses to acknowledge God sent me here, I don't think I would be preaching on this today. We preach this story and love this story because it reminds us of the greater story of a God who is faithful, of a Savior who is loving, of a Savior who seeks rebels and restores them and knows that their awful behavior can never overcome the plan and purposes of a sovereign God. And when you know that, and when you drink that truth in, and you allow it to saturate your soul, it will be nothing less than transformational for you. And it will transform you in the most beautiful ways. It will steal bitterness out of your life. It will steal resentment out of your life. It will break the shackles of those evil things and make you a worshiper of a God who is sovereign and gracious. Father, help us. Help us to know that grace changes everything. Help us to know that sovereign grace is amazing grace. And Father, if there's one here this morning who has never tasted of your amazing grace, may they today know that God's grace is a saving grace. And help us, Lord, as your children to know that this grace will not change us until it amazes us. So God, unleash your grace in sovereignly beautiful ways in the lives of your children so that we will be changed. Work for your good and for your glory. And through our lives, we pray. And all God's people said, amen.